I also just want to say to you before we pray this morning that worship and a worship service is primarily a celebration. When you think about coming to a worship service, what you need to be thinking about is celebrating. Celebrating a covenant relationship that you have with the living God. And so when we sing, we're celebrating. When we're praying, we're celebrating God's faithfulness to listen to us and to to hear us and to answer us. And even during preaching, we're celebrating that God has revealed Himself in His Word and that we can celebrate His faithfulness to give us His revelation and then for us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's celebrate this morning as we open up His Word and as we pray. And so, before we go to God in prayer, I'd like to ask one of the fellows if y'all would turn down the air a little bit more. I'm seeing a lot of fanning, uh, I think, we in it. Given the text this morning, it might got, get a little hotter. Um, so, let's, uh, let's bow before the Lord and ask for His grace this morning. Our great and glorious, and holy God. We bow before You in this very moment, and we acknowledge that we are not autonomous, that we are not independent, that we are not the masters and lords of our own lives because we didn't make ourselves, You made us. And and we don't depend on ourselves for life and breath and air and health. We depend on You. You are the sovereign Lord of the universe. And And it is Your hand and it is Your power that governs our lives. And that if ever You want us to stop breathing, we will. And so we bow before You as mere creatures. And we speak to our great and glorious Creator and we acknowledge our place this morning. And we acknowledge that we, because of our sin and our selfishness and our idolatries, we separate ourselves from You and we walk in the, in, in the way of the world and in the course of the flesh and in the course of the Spirit who is in the midst of the, the air around us and we rebel against You. And so we offer up our confession of sin and we say, Lord, we are guilty. I am guilty. Every person in this body is guilty before You. And we deserve condemnation. And we just want to confess that to You and be honest with You about it. And we want to say, Lord, based on the shed blood of Your Son, based upon the finished work of Jesus, we want to ask for You to flood our lives, flood our hearts with forgiveness and reconciliation and grace that we might not be separate from You, but together that we might not be unreconciled, but reconciled to You, that we might enjoy even in this very moment right now the joy of forgiveness, the joy of reconciliation, the joy of familial love. Lord, flood our hearts with grace this morning that we may know and experience the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. And do this through the, the reading and the teaching and the preaching of Your Word. Father, there, there are people in, in this midst right now who are struggling. They are struggling with going through religious exercises but really have no love for You. Lord, liberate them today. 
There are people who are unsaved, who don't even know Christ, have never experienced the flood of divine love. And Lord, I would pray that you would save them today. And Father, there are many of us who are going through lives um, that are just mundane. They are They are just doing the next thing without any sense of excitement or zeal or passion for your glory and honor. And as Phil uttered uh, previously, shake us up today, Lord. Shake us up and reveal to us the transcendent nature of your beauty and your glory. Lord, expose in us our sins. Give us humility to confess those sins before you and before others and help us to walk in the confidence of forgiveness and grace. We ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So I ask you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, we're in a sermon series from the Gospel of Mark called The Servant King. The Servant King. And he's called The Servant King because Jesus is the King the king of kings, but he's also a servant. And so he rules as a king by serving people, by serving humanity. Now, before we read verses 1 through 23, I, uh, I want to define some terms that are found in verses 1 through 23. Because I think that the text will make so much more sense to you in understanding those terms, and then I think I'll have to do less explanation during the body of the sermon, given the fact you know the terms. So uh, this will take about five minutes, but the first term that I want you to know is the, the term scribes. Scribes. The, the scribes were the official interpreters of Old Testament law. All right? And so they had basically come to the conclusion that there were 613 laws in the Old Testament. All right? There were 365 prohibitions. That is negative commands. There were 248 positive commands. So don't do 365 things. Do the 248 things and you'll be good with God. All right? But this is what the scribes did. They interpreted all those 613 laws and they they then interpreted their interpretations and then they applied those interpretations and then they applied those applications. And so there was this thing called the tradition of the elders, which you'll see as terms in the moment, but that's what the scribes did. The scribes interpreted the law. Now the next, ter- the next uh, term is Pharisees. The Pharisees were hooked in with the scribes, but they were the official uh, Jewish leaders who really had two ambitions, all right? They wanted to worship God in perfection, and they wanted to police everybody in Jewish worship. They felt it was their responsibility to govern and police everybody who said that they worshiped the Lord, worshiped Yahweh. And so the Pharisees and the scribes were hooked in together. Then the tradition of the elders. What is the tradition of the elders? It's, uh, it's the worship policies and procedures that were passed down from generation to generation to generation. And this is the thing about the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders was seen as equivalent to, equal with, Old Testament Scripture. That's important for you to know. They were seen as similar, the same, the same authority, the same importance, the same significance. And then there's the term that we're going to find, korban. C-O-R-B-A-N, Corban. Well, what is Corban? Corban was a tradition of the elders. It was a gift that was dedicated to God. A gift that was dedicated to God. So that 
If I have uh, money in the bank, if I have a home, if I have real estate, or if I have a donkey, I can declare that thing korban. And what that means is that is given over to God and so that upon my death, it will be given to the temple and temple worship and Jewish worship. And so that thing, whatever it is, if it's my house, if it's my money, if it's my donkey, it cannot be touched. It can't be touched by my parents. It can't be touched by my brothers and sisters. It can't even be touched by my village who might want a piece of that because it's given to God. That's Corban. And then there's the term defilement. Now, the reason I give this as a term is because you and I don't use the word defiled a lot. All right, we use words like corruption. We use words like filthiness. We use words like um, uh, unclean sometimes. But defilement is throughout this text, and defilement simply means to be unclean, to be impure before God. God has said, be holy, for I am holy. And yet we have defilement. We are unclean and impure before Him. Two more terms. Two more terms. The next term is hypocrite. Now this is extremely important. It is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus uses the term hypocrite. And he says, you hypocrites, in this text. And so what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a person who pretends to be what he's not. He pretends to be what he is not. All right? So in Greek theater, essentially... Um, an actor was actually called a hypocrite. All right, a hypocrite is the Greek word hypocrites. So this hypocrite would actually put a, a mask over his face and would act out on stage uh, the part that he was supposed to play, this person that he was portraying. And so he would speak like this person, he would, he would talk like this person sometimes, uh, sing like this person, portray the behavior of this person. He was a hypocrites, a hypocrite. He was pretending to be somebody that he wasn't. Let me tell you something about uh, hypocrisy. If you are a hypocrite, all right, you are more concerned about what others think about you than what God knows you to be. It's very important. You are more concerned about what other people think about you than what God actually knows you to be. A hypocrite is a person who pretends to be what he's not. And then finally, heart. Your heart. What is your heart? Your heart is who you are on the inside. It's your mission control center. It's your affections. It's your will. It's your thought life. It's your ambition. It's your, it's your fears. It's everything about you on the inside. It is the essence of who you are. That's important for you to know. Because the most important thing about you is your heart. You, you know, if I'm in my shop tomorrow and I'm cutting some wood with a saw, and I, I do something wrong, and I actually chop my finger off with that saw, and it's unable to be um, attached back on at the hospital, and I'm without my index finger for the rest of my life. Have I lost my identity? No, I've not lost my identity, because the, my finger's not who I am. My body is not who I am. My heart is who I am. Who I am on the inside. And so we've got to know that because Jesus teaches very explicitly about it. And so those are the terms that would be helpful for you to know as we approach this text before us. Now, with those terms being defined, let's read and understand chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. 
And when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, and pots, and copper vessels, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You lead the commandment of God and hold, stick to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, Mom, Dad, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. I literally just spilled my water up here. All right, so the title of the message this morning is... The heart of hypocrisy. The heart of hypocrisy. In this passage, Mark is deliberate about teaching us about our hearts and about the danger of hypocrisy. And he wants to point us toward our need for cleanness in the heart, not so much our cleanness on the external, our, our outside, our physical things. And so what he does, like he has not done before, he, he exposes the teaching of Jesus. 
As we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark now for, what, uh, four months or so, we've not really seen clear teaching of Jesus. This is the first time that we just hunkered down, and if you've got a Bible that has uh, red letters for the words of Jesus, it's the first time we really see a lot of red letters. All right, But Mark sees this as so critical to a life of worship for us to understand this principle. All right, And so what Jesus does in his teaching, he gives us two warnings. You guys, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to take this down. He gives us a warning about hypocrisy and a warning about defilement. A warning about hypocrisy and a warning about defilement. And he begins with this warning about hypocrisy. And so this morning, as your pastor... I also want to warn you about hypocrisy. And let's just remember, a hypocrite is a person who pretends to be what he's not. All right? And and Jesus exposes hypocrisy as these Pharisees and scribes come to him, and Mark and the Holy Spirit wants to expose to us the hypocritical nature that we have a tendency to have, that we have a tendency to pursue, and that we need to, to cast away from our lives. Alright, and so, as we walk through this passage, I think it's the Spirit of Jesus to, be, to say, you may be a hypocrite if. You may be a hypocrite if. And the first thing is, if you search for ways to condemn others. If you search for ways to condemn others. We see it in verses 1 and 2, and see it in verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes leave Jerusalem and they travel north up to Capernaum where Jesus is because they have a a desire to condemn Him. They're on a witch hunt. They are now policing Jesus and all of His disciples and, and they are ignoring the fact that Jesus is showing Himself to be God. They are ignoring the fact that He is healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's calming the waters. He's shepherding the sheep. He's caring for the people who are flocking to Him in great need because what they are most primarily concerned with is condemning His practice of worship because it doesn't meet theirs. They're out to condemn Him. And we see it. They gathered to Him. They came from Jerusalem. They saw His disciples. And then they framed their question to Jesus in a judgmental tone. Look down at the text. Look at verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat with defiled hands. This is not an innocent question. This is more like an interrogation. All right? They're not playing Q&A with Jesus. All right? This is an indictment upon Jesus and how he is doing it wrong. If they were really concerned about Jesus and they really loved Him and they had a heart of worship, they would have approached Him and said, Jesus, you know what? We see all of these things that You're doing. And we rejoice in how You're healing people. You're caring for them. You're providing for them. We see that You're a, you're a teacher with great authority, but we're just a little confused. We're, we're just a little confused. We, we know that the tradition of the elders says we must wash our hands for ritual purification before every time that we eat or after we touch a Gentile. And you guys don't do that. And we're just wondering why you don't do it. But that's not the spirit they use. They have a judgmental, condemnatory tone. And I just want to tell you guys, when you are more concerned about condemning other people's problems than searching out the problems of your own heart, then you are apt to be a hypocrite. 
When, when you are so quick to look at other people's worship and other people's lives and other people's practices, but you're unwilling to look in the mirror and say, God, expose to me my defilement. Expose to me my heart of hypocrisy. Then you're on track to become a hypocrite. Now, I want to ask you some questions. I think I'll start with the husbands. Husbands, um, when you find out your wife has spent more money at the grocery store than what y'all had agreed to or you thought that she should, do you have a tendency to get angry? Do you have a tendency to confront her, rebuke her, correct her about something like that? But at the same time, you're unwilling to look at your own credit card statement and see what you spend money on and to see how you spend your dollars. If you're quick to do that and slow to look at yourself, then you may be a hypocrite. Ladies, if you look at your husband and you have have categorized your husband as a man who is calloused toward your needs and insensitive toward your problems and hardened to the things that you go through every day, but you've been unwilling to look in the mirror and see how can I love my husband more thoughtfully, more carefully, and be a blessing to him, then you very well have the spirit of a, of a, of a hypocrite. Parents, parents, if you've convinced yourself that you are less like your kids than you actually are, if you've convinced yourself that you are more holy, that you're holy, that they're unholy, that you're clean and they're clean, and that they need a lot more grace than what you need, you're on the track toward hypocrisy. And I will tell you, Christian, if you look around in the church and you begin to judge other people's lifestyle and their style of worship and what they do um, day in and day out, and you look at them and you judge yourself against them, and, and you say, well, I'm better than them, or I'm more faithful to them, or I'm more loyal to them, you're on the road down toward hypocrisy. Because let me tell you something about hypocrisy. All right, Hypocrisy and a condemnatory spirit are always connected. They're always connected. Because in hypocrisy, the way up is to push others down. And that's precisely what the Pharisees did with Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus is confronting that kind of hypocrisy. And he says, you need to watch this. Don't be on the lookout and don't be on the search to condemn other people and other worshipers. Be quick to look in the mirror at your own heart and, and in, inquire about your own defilement. And so that's the first sign that you may be a hypocrite. The second sign that Jesus teaches us about is that you value traditions over truth. You value traditions over truth. We see it explicitly in verses 3 and 4, and then we see it again in verses 7 and 8, but Mark actually puts it kind of in a parenthesis, a parenthetical statement, about how the, the Jews, the Pharisees, would not eat with unwashed hands. And then Jesus ultimately condemns that kind of concept. But I, I want to put those of you who are germaphobes on um, at ease, okay? This washing was not, uh, it didn't have anything to do with bacteria. It didn't have anything to do with getting germs off of your hands, okay? Um, so, so rest easy on that. That, that. It's not addressing you. Now I'm going to say to you germaphobes, if you're trusting in your cleanliness and your lack of bacteria, if you're trusting in that for your comfort and your safety, then you do have a problem. 
All right, but that's, a, that's another sermon for another day. What they're doing is, is ritual ceremonial washing. It's a symbol for cleanliness. All right, and so, so this is what would happen. The Pharisees, the scribes, and all the faithful Jews would um, leave the marketplace or leave wherever they were and they would go and find the place to do their washing and they would have a very methodical and meticulous approach to washing their hands. And so they would get water on their hands and they would wash the, the top side of their hands and their wrists and all the way kind of up their arms. And then they would turn over and they would take their palms and their wrists and up their arms. And then they would do, they would raise their hands up and then they would turn them around and they would let the water drip down their arms, down their elbows and let it go to the ground. And they would do that until the water dried out and it was a symbol of their cleanliness. It was a symbol of their lack of defilement before God. And they believed that God was pleased by this, that He was worshipped by this. And if they didn't do this, God was displeased. And that He was dishonored because it was against God's rules. The only problem about this is there was nowhere in Scripture. There were laws about being cleansed. There were laws about the priest being cleansed before he went into the temple and before he did his duties. But what the tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees, what the tradition of the elders of Israel from generation to generation said, and I told you all before, they took the law of God, they added more to it, they added more to it, they interpreted it, they applied it, they applied it, they applied it, and then they... They said that this application over here is equivalent with what God has said in Exodus so-and-so or Leviticus so-and-so. And so that's why Jesus is addressing their tradition because they're valuing tradition over the truth. And I just want to tell you, um, traditions are good when they're traditions. But when we value our traditions over the truth of the Word of God, then you and I are in a very dangerous place to be. So I want to get some interaction with uh, you guys. And I want to ask, just as far as the church goes, corporate body, the church, and the way that we practice worship, what are some traditions that churches hold very dear that they might hold equivalent with the authority of the Word of God? Sure, liturgy. So, for those of you who don't know liturgy, what liturgy is, liturgy is basically a format for a worship service where um, the leaders say things, the congregation say things, they read things, there are certain words to be said, there are certain actions to be taken, you have to stand up and then sit down and stand up and sit down, those kinds of things. And in many churches, that's as authoritative as the Word of God. Sure, translations. I mean, there are churches in our county who believe that you can only use a certain translation. If you don't use that translation, then you're defiling or you're, uh, you're disobeying the Word of God. What? Absolutely, the way that you dress. Yeah, there's, cer- there's a certain expectation of the way that you dress, and if you don't dress that way, you're disobeying God. Yes. Now, there are some... There are some who said you can sing only hymns. None of this newfangled music. None of this stuff that, you know, that talk, has a, the word I a lot in it or anything like that. You know, you got to use hymns. All right. But then there are other people on the other side. There, 
Contemporary music has gotten, it's been going so long. I had a person recently tell me, I just can't worship with hymns. I, I just can't do that. I've got to have, I've got to have the contemporary music. I recently, um, I, I kind of host a radio show once a week on Grace Radio, and I recently did a show on altar calls. And that show has received more negative feedback at Grace Radio in the, uh, th that any other show in the last 15 years has. Because people hold the altar call as absolutely sacred. All right? Let's, let's not forget that the altar call was instituted in the last quarter part of the 19th century. That for more than 1,800 years, there was no such thing as an altar call. And so now, though, it's become such a tradition in the church that if you don't do it, you're not being faithful to the gospel. What about passing the offering plate? What about um, having church on Wednesday nights? How about not having drums? Oh, we can't have drums. I remember preaching a couple of sermons from Psalm 100 and Psalm 150, which specifically tell us to use instruments in the church. And I had a man come to me after one of the sermons and said, we can't use drums in the church. And he began to tell some story about people in Africa using drums and demonology or something. And just like, what in the world? And, and yet, yet God has told us to use instruments in worship. And so if you're taking notes, I think it would be important for you to write down something to the effect, hypocrisy thrives on setting up religious traditions as measuring sticks for faithfulness. Hypocrisy thrives on setting up traditions as a measuring stick for faithfulness and godliness. And what you do is you have this tradition, and then you make this checklist, and then you carry around this mental and spiritual checklist. I've done that this week. I've done that this week. We did this this week. Oh, we're being pleasing to God. But that tradition is not connected to the Word of God and it is not the Word. Let me tell you something. Jamie and I were on a mission trip back in my early 20s and we found ourselves in the upper room of a missionary where there was about 15 of us gathered around in this upper room and we were celebrating communion. We were remembering the Lord's death until He returns. And they passed around the bread. And we partook of the bread, the, the broken body of Jesus. And then they passed around the cup. And I noticed that, that they had poured the cup with wine, with authentic wine. And as they passed the cup around and it came to me, my my tradition, my religious tradition was, was confronted with remembering the Lord's death until He returns. And I did not know what to do. And so I put the cup up to my mouth, but I did not take any of the wine because my tradition was I had never drank wine. I wasn't going to drink wine. And it was a tradition of mine that I was not going to to violate no matter what, and so I passed the cup around. I didn't want to be, I didn't want people to look at me, I didn't want to be the center of attention, but instead I acted like I did it, but I didn't do it. Why did I do that? I look back on that moment and I grieve over that. Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because I held up my tradition 
And my tradition was my spiritual identity. It was my pride. I didn't drink. I've never drank. I'm not going to drink. And that makes me special. And all the while, we were celebrating the body and blood of the Savior who came to die for my sin. I want to ask you this morning, what traditions do you have personally that you elevate to a place that is equivalent with the Word of God? And that if you do that, if you do it, you feel very good about your standing with God. But if somehow you break it or other people cause you to break it, your identity with God and your contentment in God is completely obliterated. I want to say this. uh, We need to enjoy our traditions that glorify God, but we don't need to raise them to the level of the Word. And I think right now might be a good time to tell you guys that uh, we're moving our Thursday night service to Wednesday nights. All right, so, um, which ironically enough, we started on Wednesday nights and in, in, to some degree because we didn't want to be traditional. Yeah, Thursday nights, yeah, because we didn't want to be traditional. But we're moving to Wednesday simply because uh, the city of Oxford, the park and rec department, and everybody else who does anything extracurricular in our area treats Wednesday nights as church nights. And so by us meeting on Wednesday nights, we're not able to really minister to the community because they're out doing everything. And so we're moving to Wednesday nights. All right, so... You may be a hypocrite if you value traditions over truth. The third warning, or part of this warning, is that you obey on the outside, but you rebel on the inside. You obey on the outside, but you rebel on the inside. In verse 6, Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I believe this is the fundamental problem of the hypocrite. This is. Because you see, the hypocrite speak words about the goodness of God. The hypocrite sings songs about the glory of God. The hypocrite prays for the blessing of God. The hypocrite talks about the faithfulness of God. The hypocrite does actions that are supposed to point to God but the hypocrite does not love the person of God. It's a very important point. you got all this stuff going on on the outside. you got all this stuff coming from the lips. you got all this stuff coming from your bodily actions and all of that, but in your heart of hearts, you don't love His personhood. You don't love who He is. And I'll tell you why. Because you love yourself. Because you worship yourself. Because you use all of these religious activities to point people to yourself and to say, oh, how godly is that woman? Or how faithful is that man? Or look at that family and how how loyal they are to God here every Sunday and Thursday and look at all the things that they do. And in your mind you're thinking, I'm getting exactly what I want. I'm getting exactly what I need. The glory of myself. Judas Iscariot is the perfect example of this kind of hypocrite. Have you ever thought about this? But the night that he betrayed Jesus, he goes into the garden. Everybody thinking that Judas is a a loyal disciple. Everybody thinking that he is zealous. 
He is, he's a great steward with money and all of these things. And Judas walks up to Jesus and kisses him on the cheek from the lips. I don't know how this could be, this text could be applied more than, than to G- Judas himself. With your lips, with your lips you honor me, but in your heart it is far from me. Let me just tell you this true religion is always a matter of the heart. It's always a matter of the heart. And Redeemer Church, we can, we can come every Sunday morning and we can sing songs and pray prayers and preach sermons and give testimonies and we can come on the midweek service and have a great time with the kids and we can study the Bible and we can know what it says and we can know what it means. We can do all of those things. But if our heart is not hardwired toward God, if we're not longing for His glory and His His beauty and His excellence to be manifested through our lives so that He will be seen as great and we will not be seen as great, so that He will increase and we will decrease, I'll tell you, everything that we're doing is worth nothing. It's worth nothing. I want you to know that Jesus wants your heart. He wants your heart, and He will not be satisfied with anything less than that. So don't convince yourself otherwise. Hypocrisy thrives on outward obedience while you have a heart of rebellion. And the final thing under this section is that um, you may be a hypocrite if you avoid obedience to God in the name of honoring God. You may be a hypocrite if you avoid obedience to God in the name of honoring God. What was going on here in verses 9 to 13? What is Jesus talking about? What's this whole Corban thing and all of that? Let me just give you a picture of what it could look like. Let's just say you have a 45-year-old Pharisee. All right? And he has 65-year-old parents. And his dad is a woodworker, a carpenter, and his mom uh, sews and knits uh, dresses and things for people to buy at the marketplace. And that's how they survive. And, and the Pharisee um, goes to his mom and dad's house and they say, Son, um, we're struggling financially. Your dad is struggling with arthritis and he's lost his job as a carpenter. Um, my eyesight is getting bad and I just can't see to knit and to sew the way that I have in the past. And, and frankly, son, we're just struggling financially. We can't make ends meet and some days we don't even eat. And the Pharisee's son looks to his mom and dad and says, Mom, Dad, I'd really love to help you out. I really would, but, but everything that I have is korban. It's dedicated to God already. And so my bank account, my home, my resources, they've all been dedicated to God. And and so I can't do anything with those because when I die, it's all going to be given to God's work. Now in the meantime, he's got 300 denarii sitting in the bank. He's anticipating going down to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover meal, to celebrate Pentecost. And he's thinking to himself, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get one of these cheap little doves or pigeons to offer on on uh, 
at the Passover. I'm going to get the finest lamb. I'm going to have it slain and people are going to see me get the most unblemished animal and sacrifice it. And I'm going to, I'm going to feast all the way up to Pentecost and I'm going to worship God and I'm going to use my money that way. And he had a clear conscience in doing it because of this rule, Corban. And Jesus says to these people, He says, you have taken the tradition of men, something that I have never commanded, and you have elevated it above one of the greatest commandments, which is what? To honor your father and your mother. To care for them, to protect them, to love them, and to provide for them. Now church, you may be thinking to yourself, I've never even said the word Korban. I'm not really in danger of this. But I would tell you, we are very much in danger of this principle. I'll tell you what it looks like. Ladies, you have a visitor that walks into this midst at 9.55 in the morning, and it's a woman who's never been in this church, and she is dressed immodestly. You don't like the way that she's dressed She has a lot of makeup on. You don't like the way that she's wearing herself. You don't like the way that she carries herself with this attitude. And at at 9.55, all the way up to 10 o'clock, the service starts. You are offended. You're offended by her. You're offended by the way she looks, by the way she's dressed, possibly by the way that she acts. And through the service, you can't get her off of your mind. And after the service is over, you don't go speak to her. You don't go care for her. You don't meet her because you're offended by her. And your zeal is for the holiness of God. Your zeal is for the purity of God. And here she is defiling all of that. And in the name of the holiness of God, you ignore her. But the Scripture never said ignore anybody. The Scripture never said be offended by someone who walks in off the street and is not dressed appropriately. But you know what the Scripture does say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat your neighbor as yourself. It's the second greatest commandment. This is how we do exactly what the Pharisees do. Men, you carry the checkbook in the church and in your family, and you say, you know what, I'm not... I'm not going to give to the Lord this month. I can't give to the Lord this summer because we've got to be good stewards with our money. God's called us to be good stewards. We've got to be good stewards. And so I can't give to the Lord. When all the while, the Scripture says, be a cheerful giver and give unto the Lord what He is due. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. And so in the name of stewardship, you're unwilling to give as an act of worship. Guys, we could go on and on and on about this principle, but you avoid obedience to God in the name of honoring God, and this is a sign of hypocrisy. And I want to ask you today, are you guilty? And I want to tell you all, as human beings, we are master manipulators. I am a master manipulator. My heart is deceitful. It, it, it has a way to twist things into the way that I want them to be and the way that I want to look. And every one of us are that way. And so we need to humble ourselves before the Lord and examine whether or not we have a heart of hypocrisy. Those are signs. Those are warnings against a hypocritical heart. Now let's finally look at the second warning 
That's a warning about defilement. A warning about defilement. So, defilement is uncleanness. It's impurity. And I just want to state off the, the bat here. I believe that all of us have a feeling of defilement. I believe all of us have this, this thing inside of us that says we don't measure up. We're dirty. We're not good enough. And so what we do is we try to, we try to take precautions and do exercises that cause us to measure up that cause us to get better, to do better, to be better, so that we don't feel that, that sense of uncleanness, that, feel of, uh, that sense of dirtiness and filthiness. And so we do that. We're kind of hardwired in order to do that so that we can feel better about ourselves. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did, the scribes did, and the Jews did. And Jesus just looks and says, yeah, yeah, defilement is real. It is a reality. But you need to hear me. It's, it doesn't come the way that you think that it comes. It actually is inside of your heart. Alright, so Jesus is teaching us a very simple principle here. It is a simple principle. It is simple to understand, but it's hard to digest. And that is this. Defilement does not come from without you to the inside of you. Defilement is birthed on the inside of you. And then it is expressed in the way that you, that you think, the way that you speak, the way that you live, what you do around other people. When we get angry and say things that we shouldn't say, we don't look inside of our hearts and say, I've got a heart of rebellion. What we do is say, she should have never provoked me like that. When we leave uh, our job on a Thursday afternoon upset and we punch the dashboard of our truck, we don't say, I've got a heart of, of injurious idolatry. We say, my boss should have never fired me. When we engage in covetousness and we want to steal something or we want to take something from somebody else, we don't say, well, I've got a covetous heart and a materialistic heart. We say, God hasn't been good to me and hasn't given me what I need, so I've got to take it for myself. Are y'all tracking with me? That's the problem of defilement. It, it's birthed from within inside of us, not on the outside. And what Jesus is saying in this passage, He is saying that you can't wash away your sins. You, you can wash your hands seven times, twelve times, a hundred times in a day. But you've got to understand that your defilement is not from without, it comes from within, and you've got a heart problem. And if you don't change your heart problem, if you don't understand that it is a heart problem, then you're going to live in defilement. You may look clean on the outside, but you're dirty on the inside, and one day you'll stand before God, and you will be condemned because your heart hasn't been changed. In Zechariah 3, we get a vision of temple worship. That's a very little known, little book, 
It's a minor Old Testament prophet. But Zechariah is a prophet of God. And in chapter 3, he gets a prophetic vision. Now y'all track with me here. He gets a prophetic vision and he sees a high priest inside the temple. The Holy of Holies. And this high priest is to offer up sacrifices and offerings one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And he gets this vision of Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3. And and what you need to know about the high priest and his preparation is this. Is that a week before the Day of Atonement, the high priest would would, um, leave his home and leave the people and stay in a tent by himself. And he would pray and he would meditate on Scripture and people would bring him food to eat every day that was clean, that it was untainted and unspotted by the world so that he would remain clean. And he would meditate all week long. And then the day before the Day of Atonement, he would wash himself from head to toe. On the night of the Day of Atonement, but before, he would stay up all night and he would pray and he would read and he would prepare himself to enter into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. And it it became a practice that that priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice dressed in white, clean, pure linen from head to toe. And he would slay an animal and offer up an offering for his personal sins. And then he would leave the Holy of Holies and come back out to the outer area of the temple and there would be a, there would be a veil, it was a thin kind of veil surrounded, and he would bathe himself. He would get himself clean. And then he would put on another pure white linen garment. And he would go in and he would make another offering into the Holy of Holies. And this time it was for the other priests. And he would offer up this this, this holy offering to them. And then he would leave and he would go and he would wash again. Make himself pure and clean. Put on fine, clean linen. And then he would go in and make one more offering inside the Holy of Holies. And this time it's for all the people. And then when he's doing this, all of the people are gathered around the tabernacle and gathered around the temple watching him do this. And they're cheering him on because it's the most important event of every year because the high priest is making a sacrifice and an offering to God for the sins of the people. And so Zechariah sees this vision of Joshua, the high priest, making these offerings And what does he see on Joshua? Some of you know. Excrement. Dung. He's covered. He's covered in it. Zechariah is beside himself. How could the high priest be inside the Holy of Holies with excrement all over himself? And what the Lord does in that chapter, He says, I I just want to show you that in reality, this is what I see when I see unclean people with unclean hearts offering up their offerings of cleanness. He says, but I've I've got a solution for you. There is a branch that's coming one day. His name is Joshua too. Yeshua. Jesus in Greek. His name is Jesus. 
And he's going to offer up an offering. And people aren't going to be cheering him on. They're actually going to be reviling him. And he's going to stay up all night. And he's going to pray. And he's going to devote himself to God. But instead of people serving him, they're going to betray him. And then they're going to betray him and deny him and beat him. And they're not going to cover him with white, clean linen. They're going to strip him of all of his clothes. And he's going to be naked before everyone. And he's not going to take a bath when he makes his offering. He's going to be bathed in the spit of sinners who revile him and hate him. And he's going to go to this cross outside of the city. Outside because that's where uncleanness is. That's where dead men's bones are. And he's going to make an offering. And it's going to be once and final and forever. He's the ultimate Joshua. And the only way you can get a clean heart, the only way you can remove your defilement from yourself is to trust in the work that He's doing. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf, that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. Do not trust in your outward example of godliness or your religious actions. Trust in Joshua, in Jesus, the ultimate high priest who makes you clean from the inside out. Ezekiel um, repeats the words of the Lord in chapter 36 where God says, I'm going to put a new spirit inside of you. I'm going to give you a new heart so that you can worship me, you can love me, you can rejoice in me, and essentially you can ditch all this hypocritical effort that you've been making all your life. I want to ask every one of you this morning, are you a hypocrite? Do you pretend to be somebody that you're really not? Inside your heart of hearts, are you really somebody who just loves the world? You, you want to be prettier? You want to be stronger? You want to wear the nicest clothes? You want to be the envy of everybody around you? Is that where your heart is and you just simply do this kind of thing every week so that it makes you look good? I want to call you today to trust in Jesus Christ so that you can have a, a heart transplant, so that God can take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, so that you can worship Him forever and ever in spirit and in truth. Phil, if you guys would come up and lead us in a reflection and a contemplation upon these things. My story is one of hypocrisy and defilement. Uh, from my freshman year of high school through my freshman year of college, I lived a complete double life, which consisted of a lot of public, uh, viewable, religious, Christian activity, and then a, a personal, private, unseen enslavement to lust. It was public worship and private rebellion. It was hypocrisy and defilement. Uh, to everyone on the outside, I was, I mean, I was known as the super spiritual kid and you know I was in a Christian school and I I led Bible studies with my friends and I led worship at my church and I I went on short-term missions trips every chance there was and I was going to 
uh, a weird named Bible school in Chicago to uh, become a missionary, you know? And, and so everyone knew me as a super spiritual kid. I was voted the most likely to end world hunger because that was the most spiritual category that there was in our yearbook. And, and, and from everyone to my parents, to my friends, to, to friends' parents, to teachers, they all just saw me as this devoted spiritual kid. And I liked that, you know, and I felt good about that. And that's who I wanted to be, sincerely. It wasn't, it wasn't fake. It wasn't just all done for show. I sincerely wanted to serve God. Um, but I was doing all these things in my own strength. And I was secretly drowning myself in lust. I was exposed to the opportunities to exercise lust when I was 13 years old. Um, and, and I failed to resist temptation initially, and I continued to fail 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, all my teenage years, just continually failing to resist lust. Um, my heart was totally defiled, and I knew it. I felt it. I, I hated it. Um, and from the very start, uh, the, the first time that I failed, I remember confessing to my uncle, who was a spiritual leader, and, and, I, and I told him, I said, I didn't want to do this. I want to turn from it, and he prayed with me. And, and I started making every effort I could to be free of it. I read every book there was on lust. I confessed to spiritual leaders in my life. I formed accountability groups with other guys, and we would meet and confess and pray with one another. I did my devotions every morning, spending an hour and a half to, to read and to pray. I attended church. I served on mission trips. I even began seeing a Christian counselor every week. I, I did everything I could possibly think of to try to beat lust, to try to uh, in terms of this passage, rid myself of the defilement that I was experiencing. And I frequently cried out to God in total desperation to free me. I had an understanding that, that I couldn't do it myself, so I, so I prayed him for, to free me, but then in my actions, all, all I knew to do was to, to do things in my own strength and to trust myself and to um, try to stop, to stop finding ways to exercise lust. So I was as religiously active as ever, but I was living as a defiled hypocrite. I was a living example of Jesus' words that it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. From within, out of the heart. I was figuring, I was fighting my own evil heart in my own strength. I mean, it's like I was throwing punches at the air when, when the enemy was throwing missiles at me, you know. And, um, and I just had no idea how to have hope. And it came to the point where I, I would stop praying for freedom to God, and I, I just started blaming God, blaming God for not freeing me, and, and saying, I know, I know you have to do it, and you're not doing it, so this isn't really my fault. And I've, I've made myself the victim, and really separated myself from my culpability for sin. Now, um, a turn came toward the end of my freshman year of college, a week where I heard five sermons from three preachers in one week on one word propitiation. It's just completely by God's providence, but, but three preachers, five sermons, one week, that one word, propitiation, uh, that's, that's the heart of the gospel. It is that, that Jesus died as a wrath-bearing sacrifice for sins. Jesus died as a substitute under God's wrath in my place. Now, in, in a lot of ways, this wasn't a new idea to me at all. I mean, I became a Christian when I was four years old, and I knew the gospel was explained to me that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins by bearing the penalty of God. And, and, and that really is propitiation right there. I, I trusted in that when I was four years old. I must have rededicated my life to that four or five times growing up, you know, because I didn't know if I really trusted it. But, but I knew the gospel. And for years and years in my sin, I fell, I fell down onto that truth. Uh, I fell down when I, when I sinned 
I would go back to the gospel, and I would, I would confess my sins, and I would receive forgiveness of my sins, and, and I would trust God's cleansing for my sins in his son. But then once that was done, I would leave the gospel there, and I would walk away from it, and I would, I would seek to find victory in my own strength. The gospel in my mind was for when I sinned only. It, it was to save me from my sins, it was to cleanse me from my sins, but it, was, it wasn't any more than that. And when I heard those five sermons on propitiation and the heart of the gospel is powerfully laid out to me, a change took place inside of me. Um, it, it was a change that made me wonder if I, if I had just gotten saved. <laughs> but but I, don't, I believe I was saved when I was four. I believe that, that what happened was that I never, that I had taken my eyes off of the gospel as my source. So, so I heard these sermons and, and my pattern of lust didn't end immediately. It wasn't that I heard the sermons and, and never struggled again, but, but I could sense inside of me that I was struggling with a new power and with a new hope, that I actually had hope again, that, that there was freedom, and, and I was making progress in holiness. I was finding victory. It, it was when I rediscovered the gospel and realized that the gospel is not, not just a safety net. It's, it's the source. It's, it's the engine that fuels the Christian life. So my defiled heart began to be sanctified by this daily vision of God's glorious love for me. And as I began to experience victory over lust, I would, oft, I would often leave the gospel behind again. I, I would experience victory, and I'd start saying, I'm doing pretty good now. And, and then I just would kind of leave it behind again, and then I'd fall again. And there was a few years where, where that was my pattern, seasons of victory and then falling, and seasons of victory and falling. And, and when I was falling, I would go to the gospel, and then, I would, and then that would motivate me towards towards hope again, and I'd find victory, but then I'd fall. And during those years, God, God cemented some truths in my heart that just drive my life to this day. Um, the thing is, if you're not a Christian today, you, you need to trust in the gospel for, for complete sanctification from your sin. You need to trust in Christ for the defilement that's in your heart. But if you are a Christian, your flesh is still in you. And, and if you aren't trusting in the gospel, if you aren't letting the gospel be your source for the Christian life, then you're going to struggle against your flesh. Here's, here's the things that God taught me. is that first, no matter how long I've watched in victory over a particular sin, that war was never going to be behind me in this life. I, I mean, I, I viewed sin as, a, as a enslavement, as a struggle that one day God would free me from and I'd never have to worry about it again. And that was my problem because once, once I felt like there was victory, I would, I would feel like I was safe and then I would fall back into it. But God showed me that, that lust will always be there for your whole life. I could, I could not fall into sin for 20 years, but if I began assuming victory and if I began trusting myself for victory, I would fall back into it. I would, I would be defiled again because my heart's what produces that. Now, the second thing is that when I do sin, Jesus' sacrifice is complete. It's so perfect that, that there is grace every time. God cemented into my heart that his grace is boundless. There's never a point where I sin enough that his grace is, is no longer for me. And that's a precious truth that I, that I bank my life on, that I can't sin enough to, to, to out-sin God's grace. But it's not just for forgiveness. It's not just a safety net. The gospel is God's power for holiness. We, we, we just heard this sermon about our hypocritical, defiled hearts. And what we need to know is that we can't fight our hypocritical, defiled hearts with our hearts. We can't, we can't fight it with our strength and with, and with all our effort. We need to fight it with a greater power, and it's the message of God's glorious love for us in the death of Christ. Ryan boiled down the heart of hypocrisy to 
um, not loving God. Doing all of these things, but not actually loving the person of God. And John says that, that we love God because he first loved us. And this is how we know love, that he gave his only son as a propitiation, as a, as a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. And so, so what I've discovered is that if I want any victory over my sin in my life, then, then I can't produce that love for God on my own. I need to look to the cross. I need to receive God's love for me. I need to see that God gave his only son in, in perfect grace for me, and that Christ took on my sins and died on my behalf, and that's God's glorious love. And what that does is it softens my heart and it produces in me a love for God that gives me power when temptation comes to say no. And I'm not going to get to a point where, I, where I've said no enough that I'm never going to struggle again. I need to realize that that. Every day I need this, and, and the first day that I begin assuming that, that my struggle with sin is behind me and that my heart's not defiled anymore, I'll fall back into it. So today I'm walking from freedom. I'm walking in freedom from the enslavement I once knew. But I dare not assume that that war is over or that I've won victory for myself. And therefore I continue to run to the cross of Christ every single day, to meditate on the love of Christ every single day. The, the, the power to change a defiled heart is only in the love of Christ and the gospel. And so let's um, stand, take, a take some time to confess our sins, confess that our hearts are weak, and then, and then to rejoice that Christ is our cleansing and our joy and our strength.